So welcome to our climate change podcast. Uh, this episode is going to be about wildfires. Um, we also have a guest today. Um, it's a teacher at our school, and he is going to talk about his experience as a wildfire fighter, but he's going to talk about that later himself as we ask him a few questions and he tells his stories. Um, first, maybe a quick like definition of a wildfire. A wildfire is an unplanned fire that burns in a natural area such as a forest, grassland, or prairie. Wildfires are often caused by human activity or natural phenomenon such as lightning, and they can happen at any time or anywhere. And in 50% of the wildfires recorded, it is known how they started. So like most of the time you don't even know like what started the wildfires. Um, maybe some general informations. Factors wildfires depend on are, for example, uh, temperature, soil moisture, presence of trees, shrubs, or other potential fuel. Um, like with fuel, it's meant like what is burning. Um, so what can even burn in the wildfire? Then um, you can obviously see that these factors are connected to climate change because um, if the climate increases in temperature, then the temperature is going to be higher, the soil is going to be less moist, and um, like, and research exists that climate change makes warmer and drier conditions, which obviously increases the wildfire risk. I have a question for both of you, if you want to answer first, and that is, what would you think is the most common cause for wildfires? Maybe Sashi first, because I guess you know you a lot know about the answer. it. Um, like, I would think that cigarettes are the biggest cause, because that's what I always think about when I think of, like, wildfires. I think, like, a human just kind of, like, throwing the cigarette on the ground near a forest. Yeah. But you're also saying that it's human-caused. Yeah, I would think so. Okay, what you say? Yeah, it's the same thing for sure, absolutely, is that... Uh, I believe, well, it's interesting actually with the, the cigarette uh, analogy. Uh, I'm not too sure of the exact stats on, on that, but um, it, it takes very special conditions for that to actually occur. And um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, a, a large part of the whole cigarette analogy is to, to make people more aware of their activities. Um, it's actually quite hard for a cigarette actually to, you know, to trigger a, a forest fire unless the conditions are, are very specific and, and very um, you know, volatile. But uh, it's definitely human caused. So with the, the human activity that's out there, it's, it's surprising. We would think that lightning is the number one cause or, or whatnot, but it's from mother nature. But humans uh, humans are dumb yeah. or risky. Um, so I actually looked it up and it's about 80%, like 80% of all the wildfires are caused by people. And if you think about that, that's a huge number. And also, um, therefore, emitting a lot of CO2 just because humans cause wildfires. Um, yeah, then in 2020, five of the six largest fires on record burned in California and Oregon, and they saw historic levels of wildfire spread and damage, and wildfires across the West led to weeks-long periods of unhealthy air conditions and, in general, like, um, very unhealthy environment. And if you look at the years before, it was way less so it's definitely you can see even on the records an increase of wildfires with which of course also 
like uh, states the fact that climate change could have something to do with that. Um, yeah. And fatalities, like just so you know what can wildfires even cause for humans and for our environment. Of course, the most obvious burns and injuries. Um, then through the smoke, eye, nose, throat and lung irritation and all that stuff. I think that's also still pretty uh, obvious. Also, like long term, decreased lung function, including coughing and wheezing and all of that stuff, because the air quality gets less. And also, if you inhale the smoke once, it often stays for a while, like those long term uh, injuries, I'd say, or fatalities and asthma and other lung, lung diseases get more often in areas of wildfires and also an excavation of cardiovascular diseases like heart attacks and heart failures. Wildfires are not only bad for nature, it's also not the best for human communities around the wildfire areas or near the wildfire areas. And yeah, like now you got a little overview about what's going on with wildfires and we'd start with the questions for Mr. Hartley now. Maybe you want to introduce yourself first. Yeah, no, that sounds great. No, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's, it's fun to be able to do this with you guys. Um, yeah, I, approximately, I guess, 30-ish years ago, which um, blows my mind, was that I was going to the University of Calgary and I noticed a job posting for fighting forest fires. And it, it caught my eye. And uh, ultimately, when I was going to school, it was like that summer job that uh, I, I wanted to do. And um, I got involved with it. It was one of the best jobs I, in my mind ever. It was fun. It was exciting. It was unique. It was, you know, you got to explore. You got to fly in helicopters. You know, you got to play with chainsaws. And uh, you worked with just really energetic, positive people. And, and it felt like you were making a difference. And you were also seeing some really interesting parts of, of the province. And I, I loved it. It was, it was great. And so I, I basically fought forest fires for about five years. And, and in my fifth year, uh, I, was, I was injured from a, a forest fire and um, where basically we were working around, um, uh, well, maybe I can backtrack a little bit. I was part of a, what was called a three-person initial attack crew. Now, if I can just pause for a second, um, it might be worthwhile just to mention is that with the BC Forest uh, Service or the wild, Wildfire Service, um, they basically have five different types of fighting uh, ways in which we fight forest fires. Um, the one classification is what's called initial attack. And the other one is called like sustained or long-term uh, attack. And, and what I used to do, what was, what was called was hell attack. And that meant that if we could fly to the, to the fire um, and if we could land near the fire or if we could hover exit, um, in an area, say, that was a clearing, but maybe it had bushes or tall grass where the machine or helicopter couldn't sit down. And what we would do is we would exit the helicopter in a hovering position, and then the pilot would gently let us down and then come back later and return or give us our gear that we would need using what was called a, a long line, um, basically a long cable underneath the helicopter that would bring us our gear, and then we would action the fire. The other two forms that, that I haven't mentioned are fire attack, which is basically we would drive to the fire because there's roads everywhere uh, in, in BC that we don't typically notice. And so sometimes, sometimes you can fly, uh, drive to the fire 
in one of the engines or if you couldn't drive or if you couldn't hover exit um, and take the helicopter, there's also another form called repelling or the repel program. And so then you would repel between the trees someplace near the fire uh, or possibly further away and then have to walk to it. The other form of initial attack um, is also smoke jumpers. We have a smoke jumping program in, in BC and they're a great bunch of people too as well. And they're kind of a mix between initial attack and kind of sustained action where they're designed still to be on a fire for longer periods of time. They're kind of also a, an immediate re response type of crew where they would fly to more or less to remote kind of northern areas of BC that are harder to get at or that are further away, but that are faster to get to by plane um, and that can cover longer distances. And uh, they would literally jump out of uh, those aircraft and parachute to the fire. And then they can release, you know, anywhere from three to I think 10 or 15 or possibly more people at, at once where they can kind of have a multi-role where they know that they can kind of put out smaller fires or put on larger amount of people to, um, to put out possibly a bigger fire and to get that going before maybe extra resources need to be brought in. The last form, um, so I was again, initial attack. And so I tried to take money away from these guys and these people um, would fight unit crews and there our, our, our male and female forest uh, firefighters would, uh, are more designed to be, when they get deployed onto a fire, the minimum that they need to be ready for or uh, on isolation is for 72 hours, three days, where they would be self-sufficient, where I was only for 24. And they're more designed for to fight the big fires, the ones that I rarely saw. So they, they saw the really, really big stuff on a regular basis where I tended not to see that stuff. Um, and a little bit more information for your, uh, for your audience. I don't know what the current stats are, but when I used to fight forest fires back in the day and when I worked with headquarters, is that um, we had 25% of our overall firefighters were First Nations. And out of everybody, 25% uh, of our firefighters are also female. And so we have everybody from all walks of life and um, yeah, really great people and a bunch of different ages too. Like it was kind of the joke sometime that, you know, that you can have a, a number of lifers uh, that continue to come back to fight forest fires seasonally because the job is so fun. So I think I left off where um, on my fifth season, we were on one initial attack fire and ultimately there was a tree that we were working beside and, and we had identified as being a risk because there definitely are risks fighting forest fires um, that I can get into later if, if you wish. And um, we sized up this one tree and it was called a snag, like it was a dead tree. And so you know that certain trees such as that can be unstable and, and hazardous. And we had assessed it, um, what we thought was thoroughly, but we didn't quite check it enough. And um, we don't know if the tree itself at the base was rotten or if it was also burnt because we looked at it closely. It, it looked very much like a telephone pole. It looked completely stable. It was straight up and straight down. There was no openings or cracks or rot on it. And um, all the roots were intact because the fire had gone through the roots and fire not only burns trees, but don't forget trees have roots. They're also um, you know, burnable and, and they can compromise the stability of the tree or the structure. And we looked at all of that and it looked really great. But what we should have done or what I should have done um, was that we should have just tapped the base of the, the tree and then we would have realized it was hollow. 
And um, ultimately the tree collapsed when I was working on the fire later on. And we didn't hear it, uh, uh, hear that when it occurred because the pump was running in our area. So we didn't hear the crack. And ultimately the tree fell on top of me when I was sitting on a, on a log. And um, I was actually going through um, like my, my bag, getting something out of it. And um, so I didn't hear the tree fall in the forest. That's where I get my jokes from. Okay. And uh, yeah, and, and the tree basically fell right on top of me. As So if you imagine when you bend over and you have your chest on your knees as you tie up your shoes, I was in that position. And the tree fell on top of me when I had my head down. And uh, I was just very fortunate that the tree wasn't bigger and whatnot. Um, so the middle of my back was crushed and some broken ribs and I was knocked unconscious. And luckily the tree didn't stay on top of me. It, it bounced off. And then somehow I, I, was, I ended up on both of it. And then the other two crew members. So initial attack, let me backtrack again. I might be backtracking quite a bit in this podcast. So sorry that's that. fine. Um, all these thoughts pop into my head, including my enthusiasm to want to talk about all of this. Everybody should fight forest fires, by the way. It's super fun. Um, yeah, so the structure of our crew was William was our crew boss. I was our saw guy, and uh, Chad was uh, our, 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 our new guy that year. So that was his, actually his first season. And uh, he was our, our, our pump uh, person. And uh, yeah, and so Chad and William uh, were able to, I had to rely on them and their competency, their, their fitness, their skill set, their ability to think under pressure, because uh, I was basically um, knocked out in essence. And um, uh, they were able to get a hold of fire center. They tried to get the helicopter down where we were. The fire actually, what had happened was that it was on the edge of a lake and some individuals had uh, stopped on the edge of the lake. So when you talk about human caused fires, this was one of them. And this is one of our rules as forest firefighters is to determine the cause of the fire and when we put in, put in our reports. And what had happened was that there were some adults or some kids or both had uh, used the same log that I actually I sat on uh, to start a, a, a campfire with. And so I don't know if they camped there or not, but they basically just didn't put out their, their campfire out properly. And so over the next few days or, or whatnot, the wind off the lake, we believe, basically pushed their, uh, not ex like, a, like, um, not a, like a, the, the fire that they hadn't ex extinguished properly into the surrounding area. The fire itself was only about maybe a couple tennis courts big, but it was just smoldering um, in the area. So it wasn't anything exciting by any means, but. Uh, the people just didn't put it out. You can totally see evidence of, of some garbage, I believe, but also of, of the fire itself or the campfire that they had. Um, but it was beside a lake, but the lake dropped off right away. Like it was very steep. It wasn't like a gradual, like on beach, you know? And so we tried to get the helicopter down, but it couldn't, there was no place to land. Luckily there was a float plane nearby that was big enough. It's called an otter. And uh, they pulled out the seats out of that and they used uh, basically a piece of wood, like a, a two by 10. And uh, as a as a kind of a pseudo stretcher, and uh, they were able to get me on top of that, strap me down, probably with some tape or flagging tape or something, get me into the helicopter or get me into the um, to the to the float plane, and then uh, I was able to fly back to the lodge, and then from there I was ambulance to a hospital. All of this took, I guess, about four hours. Luckily, they were able to do this before it got too late because a lot of these aircraft can't fly um, when it gets too dark because uh, of the ratings of the pilot. Um, 
Yeah, and so I was very fortunate to get off because one of the things you can do is that even if the injury is minor or major, if a person goes into shock after having some sort of injury, there's a, a special a, a thing that you learn in first aid called the golden hour, and and uh, you can actually die just from stress of the injury. And luckily, just from the competency of, of the people that I was with and my own fitness and all of that other stuff, I was able to get back and get to uh, the local hospital and. Ultimately, there was sent to Calgary in the, in the long term for my rehab, where uh, my family and where I was living initially. So, very lucky. So now I can't even remember where I started talking with all of this, but that's a little bit of my background. And so, once I was in in the hospital, if I to, just to let you know what ultimately ended up happening was that um, my crew came out to see me at some point, which was great. A number of the people from the base came out, including the director of the program, and his name was Jim Dunlop, and just an outstanding individual and. And uh, from his leadership, uh, along with the other people out of headquarters, uh, ultimately I was recruited um, to, to go to headquarters where I would ultimately become for the next, oh, I forgot to look this up, I think for six or, six or seven more seasons afterwards to work as their safety liaison officer. And what was really great about this, and to be honest and to be you know, personal with you and your, your audience, was I was kind of afraid initially that, you know, that this could be some sort of token position but it, it really wasn't. It was uh, really it felt like a real opportunity to be able to um, improve the safety of the program, to add my, you know, um, I guess, color on everything, and just to just to give back what I felt that you know that had been given to me by the program. It's funny, you know, when you find jobs that you know that like if anybody's ever done any team sports or whatnot, you kind of build off the energy and you know, and the positive vibe of the people that you work with. And and uh, firefighting is very much like that, where it's kind of a, a really strong esprit de corps, if I said that correctly, where it's that kind of loyalty amongst people. And and it was just, a, I felt really supported by the people that I was with. And and it was just a, a great way where I felt like I, give back, I, I could give back. <clears throat> so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to, to, to work in headquarters and for us to uh, yeah, do the things that we did out of there and that was out of Victoria <clears throat> and so that involved a lot of traveling and meeting other crews and being involved with the new recruits and help training and yeah and just be involved with a, a variety of different things including studying the health hazards of smoke which we can also talk about at some point too as well so it was just a really wonderful thing to be involved with ultimately I, I knew that I wanted to become a teacher and and once I finished my education it was time to finally say goodbye to that chapter of my life and and to move on to uh, the education world. And so here I am. So out of the story, we could already probably like hear that firefighting is not essentially not dangerous. So um, what would you say are like the biggest problems or difficulties in fighting wildfires as a firefighter, especially now that they're bigger and stronger because of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So. So I, was, I, I did do a little bit of homework and try to be a little bit more prepared for the, the podcast. And it was interesting just to see how this goes as well. And so when we do talk about climate change, like it was funny looking at the statistics. So it says over, um, so roughly over the last 25 years, so 25 years ago, over 25 years, the average number of forest fires that have occurred every year in BC is 1,488. Over the last five years, it's 1,127. So you can see that's gone down. So it's interesting how there's probably less human caused fires 
as a result of that and that, you know, as a result of, you know, better education or awareness or whatnot. However, the 25-year average for the number of hectares burned, so a hectare is 100 meters by 100 meters, for those that may not know, there was, over the 25 years, the average has been 182,000, okay? Over the last five years, however, it's been 509,000. So it's almost two and a half times or maybe even a little bit more than that greater. And so what they're finding for forest firefighters is that the number of fires have maybe gone down, but the intensity has gone up. And so now you're dealing with bigger, stronger fires that are more dangerous to, to work with. Now, one thing that you may not be aware of as well, or your, your listeners may not be aware of, is that not only is it tougher for the firefighters, but it's also tougher for the people behind the scenes, the people that are in the fire centers, you know, because the, either through dispatch or the you know, people working out of the fire control centers or whatnot, there's a lot of emotional toll and a lot of mental, like, mental fatigue that goes along with this as well. It's not just the firefighters that are on the ground, but it's everybody in, in, in general. But yeah, absolutely. Not only are you having bigger, hotter fires, and then as a return, you know, that the physical aspects of being a forest firefighter have, you know, just they become more arduous of, of just more physical output that you need and, and the hazards that go along with that. Um, generally, firefighters um, or forest wildland firefighters, you know, there's a number of different risks that are involved. Of course, you're dealing with trees. Um, so you're learning how to you know, to fall trees, being a faller in the forest is very dangerous. You have to worry about a variety of different, you know, factors such as either just trees being unstable because of being structurally unstable because of the fire. It's been interesting as an initial attack firefighter, you know, trying to stop the, the small fires from getting big because that's the main role is, you know, is, is helping, you know, that from, you know, from, from stopping from, from happening. Um, it's been interesting seeing some trees where you'll see chunks of trees just being blown apart or trees just being blown apart because as they're hit by lightning, they heat up too fast and the water basically boils and expands and it causes the tree to fracture. And it's that friction or that resistance of the, of the lightning going through the tree that heats it up and causes it to catch fire. So, of course, you know, falling trees is very dangerous. The train is very dangerous. Walking behind your colleagues and not paying it paying attention and getting slapped in the face by a branch also actually happens quite a bit. So you have to be very careful. Um, even just simply sip, um, slip trips and falls can happen because it's, it was always, I loved the aspect of the job that when you were dropped on a mountain someplace or on the side of a hill and you would walk to the fire, you know, using, you know, the compass heading that was given to you by the pilot, you know, Remember, there's not a nice path that goes along with that. So there's you know, quite a bit of hazards that can go along that, along with the fact that you know, there's been a light rainfall. And so the ground can be very slippery. Um, and of course, there's flame too. Uh, and of course, smoke too. And a lot of people forget to realize that you're also flying in the mountains, which can be very hazardous, either from weather conditions or you know, failing machines or you know, just even tired pilots, right? So there's very strict rules on how long pilots can fly for and you know you never push the pilot and stuff like that too so there's yeah there's a number of different aspects of things that can be there but you know generally what what's interesting just you know and i'm doing my best not to want to tell you guys everything that i know because I, I love the job so much is that what's interesting about bc is that we really try to push for the fact that we don't fight wildfires because really at the end of the day, the biggest hazard that we face overall is, is mother nature. We, 
we don't fight wildfire, we manage it. Because we realize that if we try fighting forest fires, it's foolish to think that way because no fire is worth anybody's life. And uh, also that um, the last thing that uh, you can beat is mother nature when she decides to uh, pull out a can of whoop ass. Yeah, uh, just out of interest, you mentioned before that you have to stay on the ground for 24 hours or 72 hours. Does that mean that you have to like survive in your group for that time? And are you able to sleep in that time? Do you get food or like, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it really depends on the situation. So and ultimately, as an initial attack crew, you don't know when you're going to get deployed. So sometimes you'll end up getting deployed, you know, in the middle of the day or something like that, where invariably there's just too much work on the fire to accomplish. Sometimes, depending on the resources that you might have, so you may not have the greatest water supply either. So then there might be times where either the pilot might have to bucket water on top of the fire or... You might be using special bladder bags that you'll be filling up and then transporting water to the fire. Ultimately, you know, even if you have to fall a tree, because as trees burn, not only do they burn on the outside, but they also burn on the inside. So sometimes you have to fall some pretty, you know, dangerous trees, if assuming they're in your capability or bring in people that are specialized in those type of, types of trees. And um, um, yeah, and but, because then you have to open them up and cut them open and, and get on the inside of the tree and put them out. Um, it really depends on, on everything. But typically what you're designed for is 24 hours. And if you happen to need to stay on the fire for longer, then ultimately the district or the fire center will ultimately send out more resources or food for you guys to stay, uh, for the people that are on there. Um, so the, you know, the men and women can get uh, extra food that they might need. You know, there's been stories sometimes where pizza has been delivered if, uh, if if need be so yeah so it's it's a fun job and but you definitely have to um be ready to uh, to be on the fire for longer and sometimes too the weather might dictate that you're you're stuck on the on the side of the hill for a little bit longer and so i should i should have mentioned earlier that one of the main hazards to fighting forest fires is that you're remote and so if you do hurt yourself substantially you know you're not going to get off that fire in 20 minutes, it could be a number of hours before you can actually, you know, get medical help if, if something was to happen. So again, you know, one of the main reasons why BC does a great job fighting forest fires in a safe way is that, you know, we do realize that we manage things and we do try to, you know, promote safety as much as possible. That was great. Um, I just had another question. Uh, do you personally think that climate change makes like uh, a difference for wildfires? Do you think they make them bigger, worse? Yeah, absolutely. It just says, you know, as you look at the statistics of, you know, the five-year average being over 500,000 hectares being burned compared to what it is, it's, it's interesting to see that trend of just increasing bigger, hotter fires. Um, one of the things that we mentioned before uh, or that you guys uh, did earlier was how what we have is they're called indices and, and moisture levels. And ultimately, the Forest Service it's interesting too, just from a scientific standpoint, is that we have fire behavior specialists uh, that are scientists and, and researchers that study the behavior uh, of fire. And uh, we have different ways in which we can predict the rate of spread. One of the main jobs of the, the Forest Service is determining you know, what's happening in the province, also keeping an eye around the world, including in, all across Canada, 
for the need of fire and, and, and predicting, you know, future, um, what the future needs and resources required to manage wildfire um, within our own province and otherwise. Because for example, if we know that it's nice and wet in British Columbia, but it's hot in outer Eastern Canada and Quebec or Ontario, well, sometimes firefighters will be transported from one province to another through certain agencies or th to the United States. Or even in, in, in the off season, when we're having our winter and Australia is having their summer, um, BC firefighters have gone to Australia before to help out. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a management thing. Now to go back to, you know, is climate change having a, a toll? Absolutely. You can see just larger, bigger, hotter fires. And to go back to the whole moisture stuff is that there's, I think there's four like levels of moisture that we, we worry about overall. And, and not to get into all the nitty gritty of it, but what we basically look at is the moisture of the trees, the upper layers, the lower layers, and the fuel that's on the ground. And using those numbers, we can get a better idea of what the fire is going to do, how reactive the fire is going to be, you know, what slope is it on? What, you know, does it face the south or, you know, towards the sun? Or is it on the north side? You know, the relative humidity of everything, the time of day. And, um, but again, to go back to what you're asking is that absolutely uh, overall temperatures are going up. We're seeing different weather patterns. We're seeing different rain distributions. We're seeing more intense storms. Wind is a, a major source of that drives fire. It was fascinating. Um, I fought fire in, in Ontario and Quebec one time, and we were coming into Ontario. We were, we were flying in, and you looked out at the aircraft, and you see this giant cloud, and then you realize that's not a cloud. That's a forest fire, and it just went on for miles because it was just being blown through their black spruce, uh, the type of tree that they had. So there's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a major, major issue. Uh, that's, yeah, I think so too, that like, definitely climate change makes a difference for wildfires and i also think that it's not really an issue that's solved immediately like if we stop uh emitting greenhouse gases right now and the climate change would stop or even like the temperature would decrease again like it would take probably a lot to make the soil moist again and like to go back to the old pattern so I think that's also something you can't neglect in that matter. Um, I have another question because yeah. I found that like for the wildfires that happened here in BC, um, like this last summer in 2021, uh, that there was also sometimes fires from wildfires to like they went over to communities into like small towns and villages and one village called Lytton actually almost burned down at one point. And I was wondering if you ever experienced or knew of one of those incidents where a community or civilization burned down. Yeah, like as in like, you know, as losing a town or whatnot. No, Lytton is definitely up there as being one of the major ones. There was also one when I was fighting forest fires, there was Salmon Arm had some major fires in that area as well. So when you drive through Salmon Arm, you can see a number of the hillsides have been lit up, including by Kamloops. Kamloops came pretty close to a number of different things, and so did Nicola. So one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, and it's always I always find this interesting to be able to point this out, is that we forget that, you know, as soon as you step out of Mount Doug, <clears throat> or even prior to doing that, 
you are in mother nature and even where i live you know i recognize the fact that there's trees all around me and and that if there was a certain condition that i would have to be concerned about those trees and that fuel being so close to my home so when you look at beautiful places such as whistler and you see these you know gorgeous you know homes or whatnot one of the biggest things that or difficulties that um, the wildfire service has is educating people that live in these communities to properly you know uh, prep their properties to ensure that trees aren't immediately around them to realize that they are you know within mother nature and if there is a forest fire within that area there is a very good chance that they could suffer fire damage as a result um, because of the lack of resources there's only so much that we can do as wildland firefighters to be able to stop the spread of such you know such communities you know catching uh, catching a blaze and especially when you look at some of these small communities as well remember that they're um, structural firefighters um, which typically don't fight forest fires uh, or volunteer um, which, which are largely made up of volunteer firefighters they don't have the the engines and the resources to fight major fires like this and so it's it's very difficult like so much of what you see on the news is you'll see these you know these aircrafts they, they're called air tankers you know drop retarded not to fires they play um i don't want to say a small role but not as much role as you know as the people on the ground those aircraft they help direct where the fire may go but even so if the conditions are right and if the fire's too close communities are very much at a threat to uh to uh to those uh, to those fires now with that in mind and, and we, i haven't mentioned this yet by the way just in case if it helps the bc wildfire service <laughs> these thoughts are definitely my own and not officially that of the wildfire service despite my number of years working with them but um it, it one of the things that the the wildfire service and the bc government do their best on uh, or what they've improved on is that um they do a lot of what they try to do in the off season is do some prescribed burning and so if you we have to remember if we kind of go back to what fire does is that fire is mother's nature's recycling program and it gets rid of old trees right and it gets rid of the very young it also removes a lot of the fuel off the ground and when we prevent that from happening which we've been very good at doing over the last number of years well then that allows for more fuel to be on the ground older and weaker trees to grow which is more now which are now more susceptible to certain diseases that would normally be killed due to colder temperatures but now because of climate change we're not seeing that a lot of these like paras or pests like parasites i guess like you know the like those those beetles for example those pine beetles they're now attacking more trees more trees die more trees that are more are are, are dry and dead and then therefore we're having more volatile fuels and we're seeing to go back to the climate change stuff is that because we're having more fuel on the ground and because more fires are happening now we're seeing a lot more fires where you know that it's harder for the fire it's harder for the forest to recover after the fact so yeah again to kind of recap you know when we see you know the really unfortunate situations where we see these communities go through these terrible incidences like nobody wants to see that especially when you see like these small communities you know they're so tight generally because of being just you know you know tight knit communities are small everybody knows everybody and um it's it's horrible to lose your property and and um 
yeah and it's, a, it's an emotional thing too yeah. so not to mention expensive to go back a lot of these communities have limited resources or limited insurance or whatnot and you know and people lose their uh, you know their, their valuables and and as a side note even with it's, it's funny one of the main things that of course people lose is photographs and which makes it you know very upsetting for a lot of people and and including you know either livestock as well or or potentially horses and, and whatnot so it, it's it's very emotional and it's something that you know that we have to try to get these communities to give them the resources they need to make sure that things are fireproofed you know that trees are pulled back from properties that things don't look maybe as pristine or as natural as, as they want and um yeah and that we try to do more prescribed burns in the off season to minimize the threat in those communities to uh to offset those risks and but at the end of the day we live in mother nature and we all have to recognize that yeah that's true um so we don't have too much time left oh, sure but, absolutely uh we have one last question um and i was always wondering because everybody always talks about while the fire is burning but it's so such a huge land mass and what happens after the fire burn is it made to agriculture or maybe sometimes even people settling down there like what happens to the land afterwards also who would be re responsible for like making sure that the land goes back to would it be just like the highest form of government yeah no excellent excellent questions for sure uh, what happens is that if there is some sort of legality that's involved with this like say for example if there's arson or if there was some sort of industrial accident caused by a specific company, like the negligence behind that, what ends up happening is that there ends up being generally a cost sharing involved or offsetting of, of the cost, because there's a huge amount of costs that are involved from, especially when you involve aircraft and, you know, resources and, 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 and the people on the ground. It, uh, there's a lot of costs that are involved with these emergency procedures. So absolutely, there's definitely a legal aspect of things. And sometimes, um, we do have to go after agencies in order to help offset those costs and be involved with uh, with such with such things. Um, now, with the land itself, what ends up happening with there is that after a wildfire has occurred, I really want to convey first and foremost, it's amazing. Like you can have this massive fire that goes through, you know, this this you know, the forest, and literally within a matter of weeks, you'll see little green things popping through the through the ground. And it's, again, is that as the fire goes through, remember that these forests are designed to be forests and they evolved, have evolved with fire as being a natural you know, source of things. And that allows for those new trees now to pop up because they've evolved to, those acorns have evolved to open up when heat has been around and uh, to sprout because now you know, the bigger trees have most likely died, possibly. Therefore, the canopy is now open, giving those little seedlings a chance to grab the sun and to get big. And so the, a large part of these fires, they just, they just naturally regrow. And remember that a lot of the fires that do happen in, in our province happen in remote places. And so, yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting how that really occurs. Depending if it's crown land, however, or private land, they may have different uses for the fire. And, and sometimes what may occur is that, you know, the, say if it's private and if it's owned by some sort of logging company, for example, they may want to prioritize by growing and getting some planters in there and, and growing you know, and planting a certain type of tree to regenerate in that area. But generally, it, things are left on their own to to replenish and regrow and and uh, and, and yeah and recover by. 
But it, just to go back when we talk about, you know, as I mentioned with climate change, um, with these fires being more intense and because of, of reducing now, because remember, as, as the season gets longer, that reduces our ability to do these prescribed burns because the window of the season becomes less because then the risk increases where, you know, potentially a prescribed burn can get away from the people, the Forest Service from setting it on fire. And uh, as a result of that, like some of these fires, they're so hot that it takes even longer for these fires to, or for the forest to rejuvenate because so much of the organic material was just killed. And there's been places where they've been so hot, it, it takes years for it to bounce back because literally everything has just been destroyed on the ground, including those little seedlings that would have taken off. Yeah, and it's again something with climate change that if it takes a long time and it took away all those trees that are natural cleaners because they take CO2 out of the atmosphere and recycle it or use it or store it in themselves and make the air just fresher and healthier, um, it's also if it takes such a long time, then the long term uh, troubles that a wildfire causes are also not really good for climate change because it o doesn't only emit greenhouse gas it also takes natural cleaners away so i think that's also a big problem um yeah and that was already our last question but we have one last thing uh and that's our solution fact or our solution tip because of course sure. if you listen to this you may be overwhelmed with what you personally can do and last uh last episode we already talked about Uh, that you have a voice, you have to say that you care for it because then maybe the government will act and also that you should decrease uh, eating meat and um, maybe instead of taking the car, taking the bike or going by foot. Um, and today we're a bit talking about like the energy use um, because we all use electricity daily and a lot and it helps a lot if you, instead of, Uh, getting this energy from coal plants, uh, purchasing clean energy would really help. Um, and also maybe even considering if you have a house or a property, maybe even buying solar panels yourself um, and making your own energy. It's expensive once, but it's not only helping climate change, it's also helping yourself because over a long term, you don't have to pay as much uh, energy costs to like the plant provider. So that's actually something you could consider and you could do yourself to help improve climate conditions on our beautiful earth um, so that all the stuff can get regulated again. And yeah, that's basically it with our podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. If I can add just one thing, one thing just with that line of thought, absolutely. And what, what I want to give to your listeners, which I thought was really interesting, was that I saw Dr. David Suzuki one time do a talk about climate change and, and he, he basically just kind of indicated to everybody there that the people that are listening to your podcast and to the people that are trying to fight climate change and get involved with government or write letters or reduce their own personal impact and, you know, and, and buy less. The fact of the matter is I just wanted to convey to everybody is that thanks so much for listening and know you're not crazy and this totally is a real issue and science teachers everywhere are Yeah, totally concerned about this and everybody else should be even more so. And it's it's not a doomsday thing because power goes to the people. We can make a difference. And it's just a matter of trying to, you know, do the right things and find a positive way in which you can do this. And 
don't lose hope because the fact is, is that we can do positive things. And if you look at the bigger picture, it's amazing some of the things that we're coming up with. And we don't know if we're going to engineer our way out of this or if we can prevent some of this, but it only happens with action and, and, uh, and you've got the power. So grab that pen or jump on the typewriter and start pounding some, you know, your, your government or get involved and, and make sure you look at each other and give each other hugs now and then, because I know it's sometimes a tiring job or sometimes you might feel alone or feel like you're the only one screaming in the corner, but you're not crazy.